1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Jonathan Zibberman, Professor of History of Education at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. His book, The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America, was published by Johns Hopkins University Press last year. Where, apart from in a field and behind a tractor, do the words work and load separate? The answer, at college, where most faculty members describe research as their work and teaching as their load. And that answer leads to another question. If research creates experts, then what does teaching create? The answer, amateurs. Jonathan Zimmerman's book, The Amateur Hour, Helps us think about what we want teaching to be, and Jonathan Zimmerman helps us think about this by the only available means, namely by figuring out what teaching was and why so many people thought it wasn't good enough. You'll have heard the saying, learn from the past, often enough to suspect that the saying is really a cliche. It is a cliche, often, but not always, not in the book The Amateur Hour. Because the lesson that a 200-year history of college teaching in America has to give is this, do not fall for thinking it's new, but understand why it isn't new yet. For example, we read today about the problems attendant on adjunctification, a situation where more and more college faculty do not obtain tenure, do not even obtain steady jobs. And when the discussion is about adjunctification, as is the case wherever a problem arises, people seek causes in order to address the problem. But when people seek the causes only in the present, solutions are not forthcoming. Adjunctification is not a problem just of the 2000s and the 2010s and today. It began during the 1980s and 1990s, as the pressures mounted on a growing core of contingent and adjunct faculty. But the problems go back even further. It didn't just appear as a problem on the scene in, say, 1984, out of absolutely nowhere. So adjunctification wasn't new then, and it isn't new now. Solutions to the problem have not worked in the past and are not working now. What's the lesson here? Figure out why. Go to history, figure out why, and bring that knowledge forward into the future. Jonathan Zimmerman makes as much clear in his book, Amateur Hour, because despite recent efforts to professionalize college teaching, efforts which are admirable, of course, efforts which Jonathan himself works to advance. Despite such efforts, the project will remain a very small part of the academic world for as long as college teaching remains a private affair. The amateurism of college teaching keeps professors who are experts in their fields from becoming professionals in their classrooms. Now, These are the same people who accept rigorous evidence-based approaches to everything that they do. The same people who take cutting-edge research as the standard to measure success by. And yet, the structure of universities are such that professors normally do not apply rigorous evidence-based approaches to their own teaching. The fault is not all theirs, I would say not even mostly. Because as Jonathan Zimmerman argues in his book, The Amateur Hour, the incentives between career and research and teaching are misaligned. And this is an organizational problem. But as the book shows, the organizational problem is also a cultural problem and a historical problem too. College teaching needs research. Research into pedagogy, into psychology, into organizational culture. But the research perhaps most needed now is that given in The Amateur Hour, the research, into the past. In the year 1889, Charles Eliot, then president of Harvard University, complained, and I quote, there is no good history of teaching and no history of good teaching. Well, Mr. Eliot, it's 2021, and here we have that history. So let's begin today's episode, Jonathan Zimmerman and the amateur hour. Jonathan, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thanks, Daniel. It's good to be here, and thanks for that lovely introduction. Um, listeners often like to find out where a book idea came from and then the very interesting part, how the book actually came about and was worked on and then finally at some point finished. Could you give us maybe a brief overview of your inspiration and also how the project played out?
0: Yeah, there are two stories that I recount at the very beginning, two personal stories that were really seminal in leading me into this project. The first, interestingly, was that at my former job in New York University, I was fortunate enough to receive the Distinguished Teaching Award, which is the, the highest university-wide recognition for teaching. And it was a fabulous honor. And both my parents were still alive then, and they came to a dinner that was held in our honor, our being, myself, and a handful of other people receiving the award. And each awardee was introduced at a podium by the Dean of their school. So I was called up and my Dean was called up and I looked at the lectern at her notes and what I saw was a list of the books I had published. So check it out, this is a dinner to recognize the best teachers at the entire institution and what my Dean is going to do and indeed what she did is provide a list of my publications. Now, as I say in the book, I'm not saying this to criticize her. Um, I rather liked her. But what else was she to go on? What else did she really have to say about my teaching? She had never seen me teach. And even if she had once or twice, that would be, I think, a snapshot of my instruction and wouldn't really provide a good barometer of whether I'm a good teacher or not. And the point is, we don't have one. And that's what makes the enterprise amateur. I want to emphasize this because some people see that word and they think that means it means bad, right, or ineffective. It doesn't. Um, the greatest gymnast of my youth was Nadia Comaneci and she was an amateur because back then Olympians couldn't be paid. No, it doesn't refer to whether you're ineffective or effective. It refers to whether you're professionalized, that is whether there's a set doctrine or set of practices that constitute good practice. And most of all, whether there are systems and institutions that judge whether you're meeting or uh, that standard or engaging in that practice. And clearly, we don't have that. In fact, we don't even know what teaching has looked like in the past. And this leads me to my other story that generated this book, which is attending a debate maybe five, six years ago about a subject that is, of course, very much in our frontal lobes now, which is online instruction. Of course, this is well before the pandemic. But there were two people who were assuming, just to put it baldly, the the, uh, futurist and the Luddite positions. The futurist was saying that online education would make everything better, and the Luddite was saying it would make everything worse. And at the end of the dialogue, I actually realized that these two individuals had much more in common than they recognized. What they had in common was they believed they knew what the baseline was. In other words, they believed they knew what everything has been. If you want to say that online instruction is going to make everything better or everything worse, you need to have some understanding of that baseline, what everything has been. And in fact, we don't have it. And that was another thing that inspired the book to try to figure out what teaching has been, so at least we understand that much and can have the dialogue about what we want it to be.
1: Those two themes come out very clearly in the book. and uh, One of the things that you start off with is the unwritten history of this subject, of this entire area of activity and practice. it, it, it's just gone unrecorded, and yeah, yeah. Um, it makes it makes me think of another book, which I've just recently also interviewed on by Rachel Burmer and Laura uh, Heffernan, The Teaching Archive, and yes. they've done a service to um, the study of English literature and English studies by showing over 100 years of teaching from archives and shown us what we didn't know about the um, discipline, namely that most of the ideas that have changed the way we do literary, literary theory have come from classrooms. I mean, that's a fantastic finding. <laughs> yeah,
0: and, and I very much wish that that book had been out when I was writing mine. Um, you know, uh, I didn't, I'll be honest, I didn't even know about it until it appeared and I, I immediately went and got it. And as is often the case when somebody's writing in a, a related area, I'm just thinking to myself, damn, I wish I had seen this book. But to your point about sources, I mean, there's a great irony here, because as I point out in the book, teaching is a very public activity. Yet at the same time, it occurs privately, which is the paradox. So it's public in the sense that, you know, in the United States, tens of millions of people have experienced it, but they've mostly experienced it behind closed doors. And there's often very little written record of it. And so what I had to do was rely heavily upon archival sources, especially letters, memoirs, committee reports, and also, of course, student evaluations, uh, most of which, if you go into the deeper past, are unpublished as well. Um, So I had to to uncover sources um, that, that, that generally people had never seen. Um, In part because, and this is also rather odd and poignant, this book had never been written. Like Daniel, I'll be very honest with you. When I started thinking about this book, I just imagined there would be 10 histories of college teaching. And in fact, there were zero. Um, There was no single soup to nuts account that attempted to tell the story of how college teaching has changed or not in the past 100, 150 years. And that too tells you something about the the way it's imagined and valued.
1: This is, in a sense, a, a prestige question, and it gets to the heart of uh, what you do. What well, not the heart. It gets to one of the major focuses of, of the book: with research on the one hand, and and teaching on on the other. And it is ironical that if you think, okay, well, research normally bases itself on evidence, and we try to find the best results that you know pass our tests and to prove or disprove our hypotheses, and yet. As we saw in um, the book, uh, The Teaching Archive, as we see in your book, The Amateur Hour, we have people making broad statements about how teaching should be done, how it has been done, and so on, and they don't match up with the evidence. I mean, again and again, you show us the cycle of generations doing the same old thing again.
0: Uh, Yes, yes, that is true. And there's a strange kind of continuity in the book in that way, and indeed a depressing one. But at the same time, the biggest surprise to me, frankly, when I researched the book, was how much dissent there's been and how much criticism there's been of college teaching and how many efforts at reform. Most of those efforts have, I, I think it's fair to, it would be fair to say, not succeeded, although I do think recently teaching has gotten marginally better. But what really surprised me was actually how much protest, especially student protest there was around this subject. Unfortunately, I do not think that's continued into the present. There's plenty of student protests on our campus now, but almost none of it is directed at the quality of college teaching. And
1: that's a question of research and teaching or the research of teaching. What, th- this is again that that one of those recurrent uh, stories that that show up in the archives that you unearth for us. This idea that uh, again and again, as the years pass, research just trumps teaching. It just becomes clear, say, the rise of the PhD as you know, up from the early 20th century up into the mid 20th century, where it had more or less become the standard if you're going to get a position at a university or not. And yet, all of these ironies—the fact that even today these people who are major researchers are still spending most of their time in their classrooms, and no one is really talking about it. I guess what I'm driving at is, I mean, are the researcher and the teacher two different people? Are we perhaps not trying to combine two roles that don't belong together?
0: Well, look, that's a great question. And I I will say, back to your metaphor about the story, the story we tell, right, the ideal we embrace is that they do go together, and certainly they can. I can assure you, Daniel, that my own teaching has been enhanced by my research because my research has opened questions for me and avenues of thought that I've shared with my students. Um, But at the same time, A, there are many researchers who are terrible teachers and don't even bother to share those questions with their students or don't know how to. And I will also say, that there are some fabulous teachers that have never published a wit of research. So I do think they can enhance each other. In fact, I'm sure of it, but I don't think they always do. And to your point about continuity, what's so interesting is as soon as we create this research model, indeed the research university, there are critiques along exactly these lines. That is, the critiques date to the birth. So in 1903, William James writes this article called The PhD Octopus, which is probably the most reprinted and quoted piece of literature about this subject. James, of course, taught in both the psychology and the philosophy departments at Harvard, but did not possess a PhD. Um, The only degree he had, ironically, was a medical degree. And the point of the piece is we're moving to this new model where we're going to both hire and promote based on the PhD, based on research. And James just asked the question, he says, and I can almost quote it by heart, he says, will anyone pretend that success in the laboratory or the library means success in the classroom? Uh, And, of course, his answer is no. It could, um, but it certainly doesn't have to. So what I find fascinating is, ironically, the very birth of the research university, in fact, generates this critique of
1: the research university around teaching, which has remained constant through this history. And this is... uh... One of those really fascinating points this idea that many of us have certainly experienced the effect that research has had on our teaching. And James's point that that correlation need not be there has also been experienced by us as teachers and also certainly by us as students, which we've all been. Uh, but it, how often has it been claimed that teaching has enhanced research? This is a claim that's made in uh, the teaching archive, for instance, and it's also something that meshes with another experience I've had in the publishing industry, particularly in the sciences, when expert scientists move into science communication, nearly all of them report back that they've understood basic ideas of science better after the exercise. In other words, this broader explanatory act of communication help these experts. I mean, the people who are advancing the fields with their uh, with their research groups, um, to understand better what it is that they're doing. And, and to me, that there's an analogy to be made there to teaching and research.
0: Without a doubt. And again, you know, I think the book, the teaching archive that you're referring to, makes an outstanding case for this. And certainly um, uh, spending your life with young people, which is what I do as a teacher, can in fact enhance your research because they give you ideas. You know, they react to what you're saying in ways that are unpredictable often extremely imaginative. Uh, And I can tell you that, um, you know, the next book that I have coming out is the 20th anniversary edition of my Culture Wars book. So in 2002, I wrote a book called Who's America? Culture Wars in the Public Schools, which is about the way that Americans have argued over the K through 12 curriculum. And believe it or not, that book is 20 years old, which makes its author feel very old. And and I'm doing a new edition, which builds in the last 20 years, you know, 9-11 to Trump. And the acknowledgments, I give a shout out to the class I teach called Education and the Culture Wars, because not only did those students give me good ideas, but they also gave me an opportunity to try out my own, um, some of which worked, quote unquote, that is some of which clearly resonated with them. But others, you could just see, you know, they're like, no, professor, that, that doesn't really fly. So absolutely, that can happen. But except for books like the Teaching Archive, we don't have a good historical record of that either.
1: Well, we do also. I would say in in your book, the amateur hour uh, certainly uh, um, an advancement in this area of history of education. By 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 all means, um, I, th- this point that you say here about some of these things that you brought to the classroom working and some of them not working. This brings us to another major focus of the book, and and really just one of those. F- fascinating philosophical questions that are worth exploring. And we wonder how far we'll be able to answer it. But let me peg it to one of the quotes that uh, you take in the book. And there's just, this is also an opportunity to just tell listeners, there's just fantastic quotes in this book. <laughs> I mean, the archives are used to their best advantage. We just get funny, interesting um, pertinent quotes throughout, uh, really from every walk of, well, of thank you. academic are, life.
0: Are, are, we, um, are we related by chance? Because you, you sound like my mother now.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just going to brush over that one. <laughs> um, the quote I was thinking of right now um, from Amherst president, um, Julius Saley, if I'm saying that correctly, says, and this is about this problem of personality in teaching. Education is a wholly personal work. It is not gained by books or by instruction alone, nor by anything in place of the living inspiration of the living teacher. Now, this reminds us of the quote that you just gave us of of James. And I, I suppose my question is this, what is there to this? I mean, if you take the understanding as opposed to the information of any field, Right, I mean, you've got on the one thing all the data. On the one hand, all the data, but on the other hand, the the, the knowledge. Let's say, um, well, then you see that there's really a lifetime's achievement behind that to move from research, gathering of facts, to demonstrating both your command of those facts and your command of thinking about those facts, which usually shows up best when you go to communicate it. And I suppose what I'm trying to say is that this 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 dichotomy or this debate between personality. On the one hand, in teaching as a standard, the profession to get back to the, cent- the central issue of the book, they seem to be there seems to be some sort of an incompat- incompatibility there. Well, I think in some ways there is. First of all, you know, I think it's important for listeners to
0: know that quote came from the 19th century, I believe, which is why you know he says it doesn't come from books. Uh, you couldn't say that in the 20th century because in the 20th century your job is to create books. So the 19th century is very different. That's pre-research revolution. That's pre-PhD. And the professors are an entirely different breed. You know, they're these avuncular figures, often ministers or people with a background in the ministry. And they're not experts in any sense that modernity would recognize. Um, you know, um, uh, uh, that is, you know, they're not credentialed based on their either their knowledge or especially their capacity to create new knowledge. Um, uh, so um, you know, one of the most famous professors of the of the nineteenth century, this guy, this guy at Williams College, Mark Hopkins, um, he famously boasted about not reading. Yeah, yeah. He's like, no, I don't read books. What I do is I talk with students. And um, James Garfield, who was both a, a professor himself and a president of the United States, he had been an acolyte, a disciple of Hopkins, and he. Um, made probably the second most famous quote about these subjects where he said the best university is Mark Hopkins on one side of the log and the teacher at the other. Um, Ironically, he made this at a fundraising event where no doubt, you know, Williams is trying to raise money for a new gym or library. And he's like, no, we don't need the bricks and mortar. We just need Mark Hopkins. And most of all, to your point, we need his personality because that's what sparkles and that's what educates now, I would say there is a kind of through line into the research university about that because you continue, even in the research era and up until the present, you continue to hear people say, you know, teaching, it's really all about personality. But here's the problem. Personality is what Max Weber would call a charismatic kind of authority. Um, it's, it inheres in the individual, right? Just like in a king or a religious seer, a prophet. And, um, you know, you either have or you don't. Um, You can't create a system that promotes charisma because charisma is anti-systematic. And Weber warned us, once you start creating systems, you actually endanger charisma, you squeeze it out. We get bureaucracy, right? We get these boxes that we have to check. And yet at the same time, if you listen to students, they will tell you, that this personality, this charisma continues, and it also really matters. But here's the problem, Daniel. Here's the heart of the problem. The more we imagine teaching as a function of personality, the less we're able to change it, and indeed, the less we're able to professionalize it. Um, Because, you know, you don't go to your doctor, Daniel, because she has a really good personality. She may have a good personality or may not. But that's not actually why you choose her. And most of all, I don't think in most cases that's the way you evaluate her. You evaluate her based on her ability to both diagnose and treat you. Um, And the problem with the way we continue to imagine teaching is it's almost in a 19th century, a charismatic vein that actually doesn't match up with the modern rational systems we've created at the university. Teaching in that way is a strange kind of holdover. Um, It's an anachronism in a way, because it still puts the accent on charisma in an era that Weber would call hyper-rational.
1: This uh, idea of the, the rational system that we have now, yeah, we can use the evidence. Uh, we have huge databases. We have wonderful mechanisms and devices for recording. I mean, so much can be taken in so that we can make an informed decision about, well, what's working and what's not in teaching. And yet, I, I must admit, at least myself, and, and, and it does seem to come through in the book also through your own voice, that there is some reluctance to hand it all over to reason. Because there is, there does seem to be some sort of a stifling effect, which must naturally follow upon that when it comes to teaching. I, I suppose what I'm saying is that I mean personality. No matter how we work with the evidence-based system, some personality is probably going to have to remain, isn't it? Of course,
0: it, it's a relational. Um, it's a relational function. Teaching is by definition re- uh, relational. It involves, if you will, the interaction of personality. And look, you know, Weber was right um, in the sense that these these rational systems do threaten to squeeze out charisma. And I want the listeners to know that the last thing I want is some sort of massive bureaucracy that is going to, um, you know, try to rationalize teaching because when we've tried that in the past, and indeed when we've tried it at the K through 12 level... It hasn't worked out very well. And look, this is an eternal dilemma and also a theme in the book. Um, When these sorts of systems are proposed, lots of people in the United States, first of all, they associate them with the schools of education, which have the lowest status in the U.S. And I should know because I teach at one. Um, And they say, no, like, don't create any system like that. That's what the ed school people have done with the K through 12. You know, they've created these monitoring systems that are mostly a joke, um, mostly a box checking exercise. They've made a complete hash of
1: it. You really want them doing that at the higher ed level? No, thank you. If it is about, as you say, personalities and relationships, which uh, many of people who I've uh, spoken to and many of books about higher education that I've, that I've read have said that there, there has to be a caring. That goes on. And this is this is a theme that recurs uh, very often in the book that, you know, some of the um, I think it was Sinclair uh, Sinclair Lewis who says about uh, one of his teachers that he was just the most caring or most humane person that he had ever met. Yeah, William that made him also-
0: yeah, yeah, William Lyon Phelps.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So here we have, again, one more uh, piece of evidence that this this personality matters and that, it's, that, that there's an individual uh, aspect to it, which makes sense. I mean, it, to me, it's almost like if I could make the analogy to people's voice qualities, right? No two voices quite match up. And they're so individual that you couldn't even faithfully imitate somebody. It's always a parody if you're imitating somebody else's voice. And I suppose you're teaching method, your teaching presence has something of that voice qualityness about it. And if that's true, which, which I, th- I think a lot of people are going to buy into, I suppose the practical question would be, okay, well, then we've got to accept that. What are the circumstances then that we can put teachers into so that the ones who are born to be them become also teachers? What's the combination in the background, the students, the administration, and so on that enables this personal power?
0: Well, well, see, here's the problem. I mean, your, your language, Daniel, born into it, is very resonant with themes in the book, um, which is, you know, teaching is just something that you, you can do or you can't, right? It is, as per your metaphor, inborn. And look, whether that's true or not, it's absolutely poison to any kind of professionalization effort or project. Right. Um, The only thing you could do, and by the way, there are instances, instances of this in my book is try to attract people with the better personalities into the profession. And that's what the Woodrow Wilson Foundation tried to do in the 1950s. And there were the Carnegie Corporation tried to do it, too. If you go back to the 1920s, there were, in fact, schools that were administering personality tests because that was, of course, the heyday of kind of the beginning of psychometrics to try to find, quote, the good personalities to come into the classroom. Well, first of all, a lot of those measurements tend to be pretty bogus. And secondly, the other thing that I would say is, although, of course, personality matters for all the reasons that you're articulating, I also think it's fair to say that the historical record suggests that many different types of personalities can succeed in the classroom or fail in the classroom. I think in this discussion, there's often a bias towards extroversion. And the idea is when you hear this personality argument, the teaching personality is the extroverted one right? The person that gets up in front of a large audience, and as we say in the United States, fills the room. And of course, we've all encountered those kinds of teachers, that's real. But there's also the very quiet teacher, who often in a smaller seminar, actually inspires in a different way, perhaps isn't as successful in the big room. But at the same time, that big extroverted personality who succeeds in the big auditorium is sometimes a disaster in the seminar room. So again, without denying anything you're saying about the importance of personality, I also think it's important to emphasize that different personalities can both succeed and fail in the classroom.
1: For sure. And um, that makes me think of one of the avenues that was uh, explored a bit uh, in in the history and covered uh, thoroughly by your book of uh, an apprenticeship system. So the teaching assistants becoming then through apprenticeship, uh, the future professors. And I wonder if there isn't then perhaps a hairline distinction to be made between a profession and a trade. I mean, if you think of a plumber, a plumber becomes a master plumber through apprenticeship. And uh, they would call themselves tradesmen or women, not necessarily professionals in that sense. Uh, Their work is very good, but they just have a different notion of what it is to actually learn their trade. Is Teaching, in that sense, if an apprenticeship system is, which is the system we seem to have um, established, is, is teaching then a trade rather than a profession?
0: Well, well, you you will hear the phrase "tricks of the trade" when you start researching this subject, and in that sense, I think it's fair to say that in many cases it has been imagined as that, and it is an apprenticeship apprenticeship system, but it's apprenticeship by osmosis, Daniel. It's as if your plumber just brought in a young person and said, okay, watch me do this for a while and now I'm leaving and just, you know, fix the pipe or the toilet.
1: Um, And don't don't flood the house.
0: (laughs) exactly, Exactly. That would not be, the plumber would never do that, by the way, because the plumber would know that actually the devil is very much in the details and he, the plumber, must stick around and actually work very closely with this apprentice, not simply give a few examples, What you find in the book is a lot of people saying things like, hey, we've all apprenticed in teaching, every single one of us, because we've sat in so many classrooms. So we don't really need any sort of formal apprenticeship because we've experienced it. But again, that would be like, back to your example, just me just watching a plumber for a little while and then, you know, just starting to work on my sink or my toilet, which incidentally would create many disasters. Um, so I like the question, and I would say what we have is a very poor apprenticeship system. Indeed, it is apprenticeship by osmosis. Just watch me for a little while. I'm certainly not, not going to watch you. This, by the way, is how I did it. So, you know, you'll learn. You'll learn on the job. This is a little crude, but a friend of mine who teaches in Ohio likes to say, he's a university professor, that, that he, he learned how to teach the same way he learned how to have sex, just on the job. You know, there was, there was there was no curriculum, there was no instruction. It was trial and error.
1: <laughs> trial and error. Yeah. Um, I, I do want, I do want to, with with that anecdote, I suppose I can make a slight change in direction. I do want to. Um, Bring attention uh, to to the history of the book, uh, which really covers the 19th century in its entirety, with perhaps um, a bit more weight to the second half, and brings us through decade for decade, and era for era, up through the 20th century, more or less just short of today by maybe a decade, just about, yeah. Yes, I, just gave, so that re- it's short,
0: I gave short shrift to the recent history, which may have been a mistake, um, but I should also say uh, if 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 I if, if this book had um, not appeared in 2019, if I were still working on it when the pandemic hit, there would have been an entirely new chapter. And I probably would have never finished it, by the way. <laughs>
1: Uh, this uh, this is something to look forward to i think rather <laughs> that the ideas that you have there and, and 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 the the venue that they'll take um my, my aim was merely to just give readers a brief feel for for the uh, for the time covered and also the the wonderful bits of information that we get on top of uh, the connected theory and the overall message. So for me, I was blown away by the way recitation had been used. I mean, literally speaking books from memory, <laughs> um, this up through the beginning really of the of the 20th century, or just the things that just never changed. So when it became sort of vogue in lectures to then start asking questions. So to make a bit of a dialogue, as many of us know it in lectures today, the people who just were not really very good at it and the question hangs in the air amidst an awkward silence. And again, (laughs) you know, all of us have experienced that either asking the question or not answering the question. Um, Another thing that comes up is uh, student evaluations. Uh, Much of the book is based on formal and informal student evaluation. And what is interesting, again, is to see the continuity that really the view of the student is half true, half false. And as we come up to the present day, how important formal student evaluations become, and how poorly suited they are to the aims that they're put to. Well, just to, just to add a couple things to your excellent
0: summaries here, and I'm so gratified at how carefully you read the book. Um, you know, I, a lot of my students are often surprised that these, these uh, discussion sections that are often still known as recitations, before the 20th century, people literally recited. And often, by the way, in Latin and Greek. Um, because, you know, when, when there were just a handful of these institutions, uh, you know, going back to the 1700s, Uh, That was considered uh, what the sign of a gentleman, somebody that could memorize and recite in Latin and Greek, whether you had any understanding of what that was or not. Um, The University of Pennsylvania was a little bit different because when Ben Franklin founded it, um, he, he objected deeply to this Greek and Latin thing, which he called ornamental you know, which was to Franklin the worst thing, because, of course, you're supposed to be practical. But what was interesting is they still did Greek and Latin. Franklin lost that battle in the early years because the town fathers of Philadelphia thought that, you know, that's what a gentleman should do. You know, of course, it was ornamental, but that was an important ornament. Um, Anyway, we don't recite anymore. We do have these things called, quote, discussions. But I think the historical record is full of examples where these discussions, as you point out, are anything but. And Um, that's because people aren't prepared to lead them. It turns out that to conduct an effective discussion is an extraordinarily difficult and complicated thing. And um, uh, you do need a systematic induction in it, which we don't have. I should tell you that Benjamin Bloom, who was one of the leading psychologists of the Cold War era, in the late 40s at the University of Chicago, he designed this very simple and elegant experiment in which he taped a few discussion sections. He recorded them. By that time, you could do that rather easily. And then what he did a week later is he played back the tape for the students in the discussion who had been in the discussion and asked them to recount what they were thinking at different moments during the discussion. Um, So they're listening to a recording of last week's discussion, and he's interviewing them. Okay, at this point, what are you thinking about? And their answers are like, well, my date on Friday night, Um, You know, the football game on Saturday, although by that time, Chicago didn't have football. Um, You know, um, uh, uh, when this class is going to be over. uh, uh, So they were play acting. There was a kabuki play, if you will, dimension to all of this, right? Um, People are assuming roles, but not necessarily learning. So just because you call it discussion doesn't mean there is one. And it also doesn't mean people are learning from it. On the student evaluation side, for me, that was really one of the most interesting parts of the book. Um, I should tell you that there is a great monograph only about student evaluations that goes into the subject, as you might guess in much more uh, um, detail, by Scott Gelber, which I would, I would recommend to you, which is like, again, a soup to nuts history of the evaluations. But here's what I think is important for listeners to know. The evaluations were a bottom-up movement. That is, they began in the 20s generated by the students themselves, Um, because it's in the 20s that the universities, the state universities, suddenly get very big. That's because it's a time of prosperity and also, most importantly, because lots and lots of women are going. So suddenly, at places like Ann Arbor, like the University of Michigan, you have accounts of people showing up at a lecture in a classroom that's supposed to fit 100. There are 250 people there. They're sitting in the aisles. They're outside the door. And there's a guy in front with a microphone that doesn't work, and he's mumbling, and the students start right into the Michigan Daily saying, "Well, wait a second, why am I here? and why is my family paying for me to be here?" And this is where the student evaluations come from. Um, in the '60s and '70s, the institutions themselves would co-opt them, right They would become institutional. They were these Sumiss got. Um, Uh, 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 They were Samizdat, i.e. an underground enterprise for most of the 20th century. And I want to emphasize that I believe in student evaluations. That is, I believe they can tell us important things. Um, So just to take some examples, does does the teacher return work, written work in a timely way? It turns out that that's extremely important to student learning. If you get a paper back six weeks later, you're not going to learn very much from the professor's comments. And it turns out that the students are excellent judges of that. It's pretty much a binary. It's pretty much a yes or a no. And they can tell you. Here's another one. Does the professor make herself or himself available outside of class? This also turns out to be extremely important to student learning. And the students are very good judges of it. But here's a question they are not good judges of. Is this an academically sound and valid class? Daniel, they're not good judges of that in the same way that I want to be a good judge of a physics class. I could attend a colleague's physics class, and I think I could pick up on some things that might be useful to the physics teacher about the way she or he was conducting the class. But I couldn't tell you if it was academically sound or valid because I don't know enough about physics. Only physicists, I believe, are in a position to make that judgment. So when I wrote The Amateur Hour, this book that you so kindly and carefully read, I did not submit it to undergraduates to determine whether it should be in print. It was was instead sent to fellow experts in the field, people that have written about the history of universities, and they decided whether I had something interesting to say. Um, So please understand, I'm not, quote, against student evaluations. I believe we absolutely should survey our students. I think they have important things to say that we can learn from. But we should regard this as a necessary condition and not a sufficient one. So, of course, we should survey the students, but that is
1: not enough. I see. All right. One, one other interesting thing that came to my attention anyway, and that's probably my background in, in writing programs, is that much of the instruction that is talked about in the book, much of the instruction that happened in America for these 150, 200 years is all about the classroom and speaking. And I wonder if you came across anything that told, that showed the role that writing can have in teaching. And when you say the role that writing can have in teaching, um, you mean, sorry, I, I'm just having a hard time getting my, my head around the question. Sure. It was a, a very vague question. Excuse me. <laughs> I just mean that uh, the, the part that um, a teacher can play in, let's say, scaffolding writing exercises to support thinking about a particular topic um, to allow that sort of space, whether it be in the classroom, whether it be individually outside of the classroom, this point of availability, uh, office hours, where um, the thinking can occur then in a quiet place and alone.
0: Oh, absolutely. Look, I don't think anyone questions that some of the best teaching they do is in their responses to student drafts and student papers. Um, we've all experienced that. Um, uh, and and I, I think, you know, this, this restates the obvious, but it, it is, it, it's highly individuated, right? I mean, unlike a collective exercise, right, this is targeted directly at the student, right, at what she or he has to say and at different strengths and weaknesses in the way they're presenting what they have to say. But look, here's the important context. And in some ways, this goes back to the adjunctification thing that you mentioned at the beginning. Everything that I just described and everything that your question implied takes a great deal of time and effort. Um, There's no way to do it on the cheap. Um, And the, the bigger the university gets, the more costly everything becomes, the less likely it is that we're going to engage in the practices you're describing. They're too expensive. They're too labor intensive. Um, so you've probably heard the name Richard Aram, maybe you've even interviewed him. You know, he he's now uh, the dean of the ed school at Cal Irvine, but he wrote, and this is remarkable in its own right, the first sociological study of how much people are learning at college. Let's repeat that. He wrote the first study, the first actual research, evidence-grounded study of how much people are learning at college, and he wrote that book in 2011 before that time, nobody had bothered to try to figure it out. And what he found, unsurprisingly, is a lot of people are not learning very much. And there are many reasons for that. But one of them actually has to do exactly with your question. One of the reasons is how little writing is actually assigned or evaluated. So what Richard found, and this, again, is going back about a decade, is that over half of undergraduates do not have a single course in a given semester that assigns 20 or more pages of writing. So let's repeat that, right? There there are millions, you know, between 10 and 20 million undergrads in any given year. Over half of them are not taking a single course that requires even 20 pages of writing. So again, what does this tell you? I think it tells you how little we value these processes. Would it cost more to do that? Of course it would. Things of value
1: exert costs. And
0: if you're not willing to pay the cost,
1: you don't value it. Well, Jonathan, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. Uh, I do have one last question and I'm going to pick up the uh, comment you made before of had this not been finishing up this book project in around 2019, you would have written also a history of the present. Well, how about it? Um, (laughs) A sequel or uh, something else along these lines where we find out a history of the present? Well, 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 hopefully, we'll see. There are only so many hours in the day, and I have been writing
0: op-ed columns about the subject. And here's what I think would be the very short theme if I write this book. What was radical about the experience of the pandemic was not that um, uh, there was online instruction, because online instruction goes back to the 90s. What was radical is that everyone had to do it, including professors at places like the University of Pennsylvania. Um, it was rather amusing to me that me and all my colleagues saying, Oh God, we have to do online instruction. Well, online instruction wasn't invented during the pandemic. Again, it was invented three decades before, but here's the point. Online instruction has been unequally distributed. And what I mean by that is in the United States, the the farther down you are on the status ladder, the more likely you were to get online instruction and the higher you were on the ladder, the less likely, Um, What was interesting about the pandemic is it was radically egalitarian in the sense that everybody had to do the same thing. But then that raises existential questions about the future. Um, At places like Penn, there were student petitions with students saying, I think with some reason, wait a second. Why should we pay the same tuition for Zoom University? This is an entirely legitimate question. But then we go to the existential and indeed the democratic one with a small d. If this kind of instruction is not good enough for students at the University of Pennsylvania, why exactly is it good enough for students at Delaware Community College? Um, uh, And I think that, you know, once the pandemic is, quote, over, which in some ways it will be, I think, um, uh, I think that's going to be the huge question is, you know, who should receive online instruction? How should it be distributed? And most of all, Daniel, what are the teaching functions where we actually have to be in the same room? Um, You and I are not in the same room right now. And I think this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, And I don't think, I don't expect that it would have been significantly different if we had been together. But then at the same time, clearly there are other functions and other activities where you you actually do have to be there. And, you know, my favorite song in Hamilton is The Room Where It Happens. And now whenever this subject comes up, I start humming it to myself. Um what is the room where it happens, and most of all, when do you have to be in the same room to make it happen? I think those are going to be the big questions going forward.
1: I agree, and this is a question I hear again and again post pandemic and what do we learn from you know the years that we had this problem I think that writing for instance and 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 just the problem that you said about time and and the amount that it costs and so on. Writing is one of those things that just naturally belongs online. And everyone can save so much more time by meeting and passing texts back and forth online.
0: That's true. And so then the question becomes, you know, um, what do they learn from that enterprise? It is faster. But also let's remember that there is some evidence suggesting that if you read something on a screen, you don't retain or understand as much as if you read it in print. Um uh also we talk a lot about Weber, but not about Durkheim. And it was Durkheim who made the now obvious point that it's pretty interesting that you know people gather to pray in all in almost all religions. Um so they pray on their own, right? They worship on their own, of course they do, but then they also gather together. And Durkheim's question was: well, why would you ever do that? Um uh uh, uh to take another example. That's uh, now football season in the United States, American football. Why would somebody pay $200 to go to a football game in the cold when they can watch it on a high definition television and see every blade of grass? Well, here's Durkheim's answer. There's something magical and mystical that happens in the room where it happens. Uh, he called it collective effervescence, uh, which is a wonderful
1: term. Um, there's something he, he that. He was happens. also French, I mean. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. Exactly. Let us know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, There is there is something that happens when we gather together that you cannot replace um, uh, with, you know, individuated activities and you cannot replace with machines. And, And again, I think we have to decide what that thing is and again, how much we're willing to pay
1: for it. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that is Jonathan Zimmerman, and his book, The Amateur Hour, History of College Teaching in America, is out with Johns Hopkins University Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye for me to Jonathan. Goodbye.
0: And Daniel, goodbye, and thank you so much. I've done many interviews on this book, and I just want to say that this one was the best one. It was the best because of the way that you framed it and the care that you took in thinking
1: about it. Well, thank you very much. That's, that's wonderful to hear. <laughs> and this is goodbye to all of my listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.